Hey everyone, welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. My name is Courtney. And I am Patrick. Happy Sunday, everybody. It is a lazy Sunday here. We're sipping coffee and... Sipping chugging coffee, we're talking about. Chugging coffee. <laughs> I'm tired. You're tired? I know. Yes, ma'am. But we can have a nice little relaxing chat about a serial killer, so it's all good. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get started, guys, you know that we like to shout out podcasts and share the love. Today, we're going to be talking about Sips of Crime with our friends Michelle and Candy. Yeah. And we love those ladies over there. They're amazing. And um, they're the ones that introduced me to the chocolate wine that yep. I was telling you about. <laughs> so I make sure. They, they try out new, new wines and new cocktails, cocktails. And they just get a little tipsy while they're telling I love it. fabulous true crime stories. It's, kind of, it's so much fun. Yeah, I'm going through their Instagram right now. And I've screenshotted this. Remember the Choco Vine wine? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> So make sure you subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts and tell them that Pat and Courtney sent you. Hello to our freaky family. I'm Michelle. And I'm Candy. And this is Sips of Crime. True crime and good wine. Uh, two friends talking about it. You're so right. We are two busy moms who have been friends for 20 years and love wine and true crime, but rarely got to see each other. So what better reason to start a podcast about the things we love? Each other, wine, and true crime. So grab a glass. Grab a friend. And let's dive in to some of the most notorious tales of murder, mystery, betrayal, and a few laughs along the way. <laughs> You can join our freaky family, both on Instagram and Facebook, at Sips of Crime. We do listeners' tales, so send in your true crime or paranormal stories to sipsofcrime at gmail.com. And you can find our podcast on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until then, stay Stay alive. alive. So... Do we have any more business to take care of, Pat? I don't think we do, no. Okay, well, let's get into it because it's going to be a long one today. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Do you know who we're talking about? I have no idea. Today we are talking about Robert, also known as Bob Berdella. Have you heard of him? No. He is a vile monster that tortured, raped, murdered, and butchered. Of the six men that he killed, not one complete body was found. So he dismembered his victims, too, to dispose of his body, their bodies. All of these, Yeah, he's something else. All of these poor young men were said to have been male prostitutes, but they all deserved to live their lives and have a fair shake. Instead, they all ended up crossing paths with the worst serial killer Kansas City has ever seen. And actually, guys, I don't know if I've researched a more sadistic man. That's this crazy. guy I've never heard of him. is insane. Yeah, a lot of people haven't heard of him. I'm, sh- I'm shocked. I actually read my first book on this guy about a year ago, and I said I would never cover him because he's just too vile. But I haven't seen a ton of coverage on him, surprisingly. Not, and I don't think a lot of people just have heard of him. And I'm not sure, is it because he only killed six people and not 36 like Ted Bundy? Maybe that's why. Who knows? So without further ado, this is the story of Bob Berdella, the butcher of Kansas City. Nice. 
<laughs> this whole episode is one huge ash trigger warning. It gets really, really rough. So just, just beware. All okay? right. All right. <laughs> like every one of our episodes isn't that way. So. I know. This one is particularly. Yeah, it's so much worse. Than all it episodes. gives you the ooeys, the ooeys gooeys feelings. Oh, yeah, because all the people, fucking dead bodies and shit throughout all our stories <laughs> doesn't do that. No, <laughs> I don't tell happy tales here. That's all I'm saying. If you're new here. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. So unlike a lot of serial killers, Bob Berdella didn't show many signs of deviancy growing up in the small town of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. I had to practice saying that a mm-hmm. lot, a long time in the mirror, Cuyahoga Falls. As a young child, he was pretty normal and decent. We're going to call him Bob throughout this episode, I think. So... Not Robert. Makes it easier. Along with a few other choice names. Sorry, he was born on January 31st, 1949 to a completely normal, middle-class working family. His father, Robert Berdella Sr., worked for Ford Motors, and his mother, Mary Berdella, was a homemaker. Robert had a little brother named Daniel, and the family of four was close, and they regularly attended church though Bob stopped attending sometime in his teen years. The only, I guess, remarkable thing about his childhood is that Daniel was the athletic child, and Bob just seemed to be kind of there. Apparently, Bob's dad was one of those sports dads. Uh. We all know the type, the one yelling on the sidelines. So, <laughs> so Bob was kind of a disappointment to him. I'm not sure if he was abusive per se, but... You know, yeah, I mean, he was definitely not what he wanted his son to be. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. About the age of five, Bob had really, really poor eyesight. So he had to wear these really thick Coke bottle prescription glasses, which in turn led to him being bullied at school because kids are assholes. Right. Pretty much. So Berdella was a good student. He was really smart. He had really high IQ. However, teachers would find him frustrating, they would say. He would come off as rude or condescending, like a know-it-all. We mm-hmm. all know the type. Yep. At 16, Berdella's dad died unexpectedly at the age of 39 of a heart attack. That's young. That was very young. And this changed Bob drastically. His mother remarried, and this caused Bob a great deal of anger. Like, he refused to accept his new stepfather at all. There even was a few years where he wouldn't speak to his mom. Damn. So during Bob's high school years, he worked as a line cook at a local restaurant where he claims that he was sexually assaulted by a fellow male employee. And Bob said that this would be his first homosexual encounter. And if that's true, then that's that's rough. And and you couldn't back then you can't like come forward. You wouldn't come forward, no, I don't not, think. Especially not with that. No. no, not a not a guy, unfortunately. So he had to deal with that. Back then matters like these were rarely reported to police, especially if it was a man-on-man crime. So the assault was kept a secret for Bob to live with on his own. Living on, you know, with something like that, never telling anyone, that would be super detrimental to someone's yeah, mental health. You can't deal with it. Mm-mm. Especially a boy, a teenager. So Bob had it rough, especially in his teen years. It was around this time that he also began to suspect that he might be gay. Although he wouldn't technically be open about that until his 20s. So we feel sorry for the child, not the adult, (laughs) particularly this guy. Right. Shortly after the assault, 
Uh, Bob saw the motion picture, The Collector. I think they remade it. This was an old movie, but okay. do you remember that movie, The Collector? Not probably the same style movie. Yeah. I remember it's a, like the dark ass horror movie. That's that's it. Oh. I think, yeah. It's a story about a socially awkward man who collects butterflies. Yeah, the dude in this, in the version we saw, collected body parts and teeth. Oh. Not <laughs> No, 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 not that one. Okay. No, I think they redid it, but... I can't remember who starred in the newer one. So this guy collects butterflies and he becomes obsessed with his female co-worker and he takes her as prisoner, convinced that she'll eventually fall in love with him. No, oh, of course. Yeah, so Makes this sense. this was kind of like the inspiration for Bob's crimes now. Oh. This will be the catalyst for Bob's deep, dark fantasies to begin, I think. So... Bob Burdell is really a true case of life imitating art because he went on to always talk about this movie and how it inspired him. Okay, so after high school, Burdella enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute. He had hopes of becoming an art professor one day. Okay. In college, he was introverted, and he kept to himself mostly. He did start to experiment, as everybody did, with drugs during that time, especially LSD. That was his drug of choice. It was the 60s, so <laughs> he wasn't the only one. <laughs> no, he was definitely not the only person getting high on LSD. It was during this time that his dark fantasies began to increase, and this is when he started experimenting on animals. So trigger warning, animal cruelty coming up. Another common trait we see in serial killers. Bob is, this is nuts. Bob is said to have boiled a duck alive. The fuck? He killed a chicken. And a dog as well by injecting them with a variety of sedatives and drugs in an effort to gauge their tolerances and physical reactions. This is something he would eventually do to people. You'll see. Okay, this is so messed up. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm just uncomfortable. <laughs> this is how screwed up he was. He was expelled from the Art Institute for using a dead dog as part of an art exhibit. It's probably one he killed himself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Shit, this dude's fucked up. Oh, he's just something. He's a he's a new level. So after being kicked out of art school, he was 20 years old. Bob took his savings and bought a Victorian-style home on Charlotte Street in Kansas City, where he was known to keep mostly to himself. But this is the house where he will later imprison, torture, murder, and dismember people. Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> To neighbors, he was eccentric, um, but helpful, normal-ish. He even ran the neighborhood watch programs and, <laughs> and was involved in numerous charities. Go figure. Look how great I am. Yeah, absolutely. I love that he was part of neighborhood watch. And, <laughs> and he was, can you imagine the neighbors when they found out everything he did? Yeah. Like, oh, my God. So his charitable work was also extended to Kansas City's burgeoning male prostitute population. Unfortunately, a lot of these young men were addicted to drugs. So Berdella would open up his large home to them, and he even helped several, several of these young men get clean. And according to him, no sex was ever involved. If you believe him, then maybe. I mean, I, I don't no know. Idea. I really don't believe him. I don't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. It's hard to say what's true or not, but he did rehabilitate several young men. Bob loved collecting stuff like he was he could be on an episode of hoarders oh he collected historical stuff artifacts 
art, everything. So it was only fitting that he would open up a small curiosity shop at the old Westport flea market called, and he named it Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, where <laughs> where he sold relics and collectibles. And he also continued working on with his uh, cooking career. Okay. Weirdo. Yeah. Unfortunately, around this time, he also started to really amp up his drug and alcohol use as well. He started breeding chow chow dogs fuck? at his home. <laughs> this is all over the map. He really is. But this would give him access to an animal supplier in the area so he could purchase medical supplies and veterinarian veterinarian medicines. Uh-huh. That'll come into play later. I'm sure you can that. imagine. Yeah, I figured that one. So we've seen the char- charitable, humane side of Bob Berdella. It's hard to believe he's about to snap and become... Well, actually, it might not be that hard to believe after what it's we know about It's not that hard him. to believe. <laughs> the worst serial killer Kansas City's ever seen. So... Let's get to Bob's first unfortunate victim. In 1984, Berdella began courting 19-year-old male prostitute Jerry Howell. How does one court a fucking prostitute? Well, Throw they money were, at him? No, they were uh, friends. He knew him since he was 14 because his dad also owned a shop at the flea market. So they spent a lot of time together and had a sexual relationship. I, mean, I, just, I, I just don't understand probably, the term I don't, courting a prostitute. I don't know if he paid him or not, but he really liked him. Okay. Well, as much as Bob can like someone. We can't like him that much because he obviously kills him. <laughs> now, Verdella had known Jerry since he was 14, which, you know, he's, he's an adult. He's like 40. Yeah. So he's not 40, but he's in his... He's in his late 20s here. Or in 1984? So he was, he was born in the 40s. Oh, that's right. He was. He's like mid-30s at least. Jerry and Berdella had formed a sort of friendship. I believe that Berdella was grooming him in a way. But that's just my opinion. Jerry was fascinated that Berdella was openly gay. Understandable since it was a hard thing to be, right? So Jerry, like I said, was fascinated that Berdella was openly gay. He was also fascinated by the weird art and antiques that Bob sold at his store. So he would naturally spend quite a bit of time kind of following Berdella around. I think as a young kid, Jerry was questioning his sexuality as well. So he was interested. Now, this relationship enraged Jerry's dad, who also owned a shop at the flea market. He had heard things around town about Berdella, and he didn't want his son to have anything to do with him, understandably. But the pair didn't pay much attention to him. They eventually entered into a sexual relationship of sorts, though I'm not exactly sure at what age Jerry was when this happened. They grew close enough that Berdella loaned Jerry a substantial sum of money. And one thing about Bob Berdella, he was weird with money. If you loaned, if he loaned you money, you're going to pay it back. Like, and in a timely fashion. Well, Jerry was in no rush <laughs> to pay Robert back. Probably didn't have it. He kept making excuses as to why he couldn't pay up. <clears throat> and this started to enrage Berdella. He felt that he was being taken advantage of. Yeah. And I'm sorry, guys, my allergies are raging. So if you hear me kind of sniffling, I apologize. So finally, on July 4th, 1984, Berdella picked up his young friend and returned back to his home on Charlotte Street, where they spent some time partying and drinking together. 
The pair smoked weed and even injected themselves with a variety of street drugs. And Berdella tried to get Hal to perform sexually for him, but Hal resisted. This pissed Berdella off because how dare he resist, you know? Especially because you owe me money and you're going to resist me? No. So Berdella loaded up a syringe with a large enough dose of tranquilizers to render Hal unconscious within minutes. Berdella, this is going to get rough, guys. Berdella proceeded to strip off Hal's clothes and tie his hands behind his back. He injected Hal with another heavy dose of drugs in his buttocks to ensure that he remained under Berdella's full control. He had every intention of taking this young man and making him his prisoner, kind of like his sex slave. Now, this is where things are going to get really graphic because this dude is absolutely vile and sick. (laughs) So if you want to just skip ahead about a minute, then go, go for it. For those of you that are still here, let's go. While Jerry Howe was unconscious from all the drugs, Berdella raped him repeatedly until he was no longer able to perform. When that happened, Berdella went off. He went down to the um, kitchen, to the fridge, and got a cucumber and a carrot and used those to anally violate him to the point where he was bleeding profusely from the rectum. Berdella made sure to take Polaroid pictures to document everything. He wanted mementos. And guys, I don't recommend it. But you can see these Polaroid pictures on the interwebs. No, thanks. And it is so sad, so terrifying. I'm going to, I'm getting graphic with this, but trust me, if you look at the Polaroids, you'll see I'm just skimming the surface here. I'm just giving you a brief overview, but these guys went through hell. Throughout the entire day, Hal was kept tied to a bed in one of the empty guest bedrooms and completely left sedated, which I guess is some kind of small blessing yeah if you think about it now this is really weird i mean all of it is but this is nuts every injection and dosage and time of injection was carefully logged by berdella almost like how was a patient in a hospital fucking weirdo he had a torture log yeah the next morning july 5th berdella made sure how was properly sedated before he left and just went to work because you know nuts. everything's normal he showed no outward visible signs to indicate that to his customers or fellow shopkeepers that anything was out of the ordinary. He did close early that day. And when he returned home, he gave Hal even more injections, most likely a cocktail of ketamine and other things, before repeatedly raping him. Now making notes in his journal the position he used and the time in which it happened. At approximately 10 p.m. that night, Jerry Howell died from choking on his own vomit. Berdella was surprised. He didn't know if his death was from the assault with a metal bar or a huge amount of drugs in his system. Either way, Berdella was pissed that he only had this prisoner for 24 hours. the drugs if he's choking on his own vomit? Yep. He OD'd. Sounds like it. And he was gagged, so he couldn't... Couldn't get it out of his mouth. Couldn't get it out of his mouth. He's throwing up into the gag, so he's going to choke on it, yeah. Berdella would later say of Hal's death, and this is a quote, After being drugged the second day, he was in my house. In the process of changing and tightening his gag, along with drugging him for the evening, he apparently asphyxiated from bodily fluids that he may have brought up or he was not able to get enough air. Either way, now he has a body to dispose of. Yeah. This is bad. Berdella dragged Hal down into the basement, and it was here that 
we're about to learn how he earned his nickname, Big Butcher of Kansas City. Trigger warning. I mean, you don't have to say trigger warning. We've already given like eight of them. This is so gross. <laughs> the whole damn thing yeah, is a trigger Yeah, the whole warning. damn thing is a trigger warning. Berdella had obviously spent a lot of time thinking this through because he had one hell of a plan that not many sane minds could think of. He suspended Hal's dead body from two ropes tied around his feet and basically strung him up with pulleys that he mounted on the ceiling of his basement. So Hal's body was raised upside down. Pictures of all this, too. Berdella then sliced the boy's jugular and let him bleed out into a large cooking pot placed beneath him. This excited Robert because he's disgusting. Yeah. He took numerous Polaroids of the whole entire process and even admitted to masturbating while Hal was bleeding out. Jesus. I just can't. So after the boy sufficiently bled out, Berdella attempted to use a chef knife, a chef's knife to dismember him, but the knife wasn't able to cut through the bone. So Berdella went and got a gas-powered chainsaw <laughs> just, to finish the job. This doesn't work, so let me just go industrial strength here. Jesus. After Jerry psycho. was a psycho. After Jerry was dismembered into manageable pieces, Berdella placed all of his parts into green garbage bags. Then on the following Monday, he just carried the bags out to the curb. Garbage man picked them up. Yep. Berdella was on cloud nine after his first kill, but as the high started to fade away, he admitted to making notes as to what he could remember about the time that he had with Jerry Howe, and he would masturbate to those notes along with the Polaroids. Lovely. Can you even get your head around what kind of demented mind could take murder to this level? Like, it's just... It's not, that, it's not just... The, we, we've seen a ton of people take murder to this level. It's the sexual gratification he yeah. gets from this, this... I mean, these are heinous murders. Even just bleeding him out. He's getting gratification from it. That's what I mean. So You've weird. seen all these other murders we cover from, you know, the cannibal to other ones we haven't covered, like Warnos or any of those. Yeah. These, just crazy things. Ed Gein, all these Nuts. people. But to do those things and then to, like, just sexually gratify yourself yeah. with those th- and the memories and pictures you took of it, that's just fucked up. I actually learned, and we'll get into this coming up, but I learned that he's a, a type of serial killer that I had never heard of. We'll get into that. But yeah, he's he's definitely different than Bundy. And he's a lot like Dahmer. He's a lust killer is what it's called. But we'll get there. Of course, it's only a matter of time that the memories of his first kill wouldn't be sufficient anymore. He's going to have to do it again. But before we move on to his next victim, let's talk about what kind of serial killer, other than just a sick one, Berdella is. Because he just seems to be a special breed. Yeah. I think we can all agree. That's for sure. Let's hope there's no one else out there like him. First and foremost, we see that Robert Berdella is an opportunistic serial killer. He's, if he's targeting prostitutes, that's what he is, right? They're I mean, less likely to be missed. I was about to say, that is a very common trend among serial killers. And we see, All unfortunately, we see so many serial killers target prostitutes. From what's his face in Alaska, the baker yeah. to... Yep, Butcher Baker. To the, the torso killer. The torso They're killer. all killing serial killers because, like you said, no one misses them. Right. And especially then the people going to the cops are like, oh, I'm a prostitute and this is what's happening. The cops are like, yeah, whatever. Whatever. You're a hooker. Whatever. Yeah. And this, uh, they're just not going to follow no one, up yeah, and no give one, it the attention. No that, one ca- It's not Susie from down the street from a wealthy family that went missing. This right. is just a hooker that does drugs and disappears on her own anyway because she's, you know, she's a prostitute. Yep. 
Unfortunately. However, Berdella is highly organized. We see evidence of that with his stupid logs and Polaroids. Oh, yeah. And journals. He's, very, he's very calculated. And, and a planner. Mm-hmm. But Berdella is part of a subgroup of serial killers called, and I never heard of this, a hedonistic lust killer. Let me explain what that is because I went down a rabbit hole. I'm sure this. you did. I know you did. <laughs> and I'm going to bring you down with me. Okay. According to octocomics.com, a hedonistic serial killer is a type of serial killer looking for thrills and derives pleasure from killing, seeing people as expendable means to this end. They say, kill for the joy of it. I was say when, you, when they get the thrill and derive pleasure, you're talking about sexual pleasure. Yes, yeah, sexual yeah. pleasure. Disgusting. Now, to break him down further, there are three subgroups of hedonistic serial killers. Lust, comfort, and thrill. It is spec- it's speculated that Berdella fits into the lust subcategory. I mean, duh. According to Psychology Today, sex is the primary motivation for hedonistic lust killers, regardless of whether the victims are alive or dead. As such... Necrophilia is a frequent aspect of lust killer homicides. For many hedonistic lust killers, sexual gratification often requires mutilating their victims, drinking their blood, cannibalism. Think Dahmer, Edmund Kemper. Well, think fucking, what's his face? Vampire killer. I mean, Bundy. Bundy, yeah. I mean, he went up to his little mountain up there and violated all these disturbed up corpses that he's been killing. So gross. So nasty. I just think it's so interesting how these evil monsters can be categorized. Like, you can break them down. Who, who the fuck categorizes these dudes? Like, right? I am so sorry for your job. <laughs> I would love that man. job. Are you kidding me? But without further ado, let's get back to the story and unfortunately, Berdella's subsequent victims. Victim number two. So, he waited 10 months before finding another victim. Well, that's what we see. Longer periods of time and it gets shorter and, and shorter, shorter, shorter and shorter. And shorter. Mm-hmm. It had been about 10 months since Bob tortured, murdered, and dismembered 19-year-old Jerry Howe. And by now, his urges were starting to return. Yeah, Polaroids aren't doing it anymore. Initially, Bob was nervous that someone may find the body parts he disposed of, which were now nothing but bones in a landfill. But as time went on, he began to feel more and more invincible. They do. They you all see this do. With all of them. They, they test the waters on the first kill, and then when they don't get caught, they get... You know, they get more brazen. And as time goes on, they get more and more, like, Mm -hmm. accidental, honestly. Yeah, they do. And that's how they get caught. He bounced back and forth from feeling disgusted with himself to feeling turned on, for lack of a better word. I hate myself. I'm horny. I hate myself. (laughs) I'm horny. What the fuck? (laughs) But he seemed to justify things in his warped mind. He thought no one's going to miss a gay prostitute. Sadly, Hal was very much being searched for by his father. Unfortunately, though, many more victims would have to die. For his son to receive any justice. Okay. In the early days of spring 1985, Bob was ready to take another prisoner. He invited his acquaintance, Robert Sheldon, to come and party with him and stay over, as he had done several times in the past. While the pair were partying and injecting drugs, Berdella, for some reason, decided that Sheldon wasn't the right fit to be his prisoner. He just wasn't that attracted to him. Good. So Berdella decided to just go to bed rather than knock him out and tie him up. When Berdella woke the next morning, he found Berdella, he found, um, sorry, <laughs> he found Robert Sheldon sick on the bathroom floor, complaining about being in a lot of pain. <clears throat> Berdella, ever the concerned and helpful individual, took Sheldon to the 
the University of Kansas Medical Center to make sure he was okay. He was given a prescription for penicillin and sent home. That evening, the pair began partying again, and during this time, Berdella seemed to have a change of heart. He wanted to take Sheldon captive, so he gave the young man a heavy dose of tranquilizers, including a crushed Valium. Good Lord. After he passed out, Bob stripped him of his clothes and tied his legs together before carrying him, carrying him up to the bedroom of the third floor. He then sodomized Sheldon, and we know this because he made a note of it in his weird torture log. The note said BF 1115, BF meaning butt fuck. Oh. Yeah. He had a full abbreviation system for his logs. Okay. Like Howell, Sheldon was raped for several hours using vegetables from Bob's fridge. Why? Because he's fucking weird. (laughs) He's so weird. (laughs) Fucking dude has issues. (laughs) Big issues. Now comes the escalation. You ready? Sure. Bob wanted to see what would happen if he put liquid Drano into Sheldon's eye. Oh. Hoping it would permanently blind him, which would in turn make him a more compliant captive. Berdella also used a syringe to inject Drano into Sheldon's left ear, causing Sheldon to scream out in complete agony. Berdella recorded this in his log. The entry read DCLE, meaning drain cleaner, left eye as well as left ear. Berdella then used pliers and a hammer to crush the bones in poor Sheldon's hands before giving him another dose of tranquilizers to silence his screams. Can't have the neighbors hearing him. No, yeah, no. Fuck that. He didn't want to be heard by his neighbors after all. During another bizarre effort to impair Sheldon's senses, this is so weird, Bob injected silicone caulk, (laughs) window caulk, into the young man's ears in an effort to deprive him of hearing. The Drano didn't deafen him. Berdella would later say how pissed it made him that the damn cock wouldn't remain in the ear. It wouldn't adhere. Yeah, because it's not going to cool and harden because of the body temperature. Berdella became more and more fascinated with needles and injecting his victims. What's that called? That's called something. It's a fascination with needles and sticking people. It's called being a sick fuck. (laughs) Okay, that's what it is. That's (laughs) clinical. Clinical diagnosis, he's a sick fuck. (laughs) Good job, Pat. <laughs> he would then in turn inject sedatives into Sheldon in odd places on his body, like underneath the testicles. The fuck? The amount of torture and agony this poor boy suffered is absolutely unimaginable. I just want to go back in time and save him, you know? After having Sheldon in his possession for four days, Berdella decided to experiment on him further hmm. by electrocuting him with his new 7,000-volt electrical transformer. Jesus. He secured alligator tip clips to various sensitive parts of Sheldon's battered body and took pleasure as he watched the young man stiffen and jump off the bed with each jolt. Side note, you know there's lots of Polaroids of all of this. He no, just kept taking Polaroids and kept documenting all of this. On April 15th, Bordella had to make the decision to kill Sheldon. He suffocated the young man with a plastic bag, tethering it shut at his around his neck, and Sheldon was dead within minutes. Again, Bob drained the body of blood in the basement and dismembered the corpse before disposing of him in his garbage. However, this time, Bob would keep the severed head of Robert Sheldon, burying it in his backyard. Oh, okay. 
This time around, Bob felt no sense of remorse, regret, fear, nothing whatsoever. He just wanted another victim. Yeah, he's over it. Yeah, he's over it. So the summer after, Berdella hired a young man named Mark Wallace to help clean up his backyard, the same backyard where Robert Sheldon's head was buried. On June 22nd, Berdella invited Wallace into his home to drink and do drugs. And Wallace was like, okay, sure, sounds good. Wallace agreed. He consented to inject tranquilizers. Um, But instead of putting tranquilizers in the syringe, Berdella injected him with one and a half cc's of chlorpromazine, followed by ketamine, which rendered him completely unconscious, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. Bob then stripped off Wallace's clothing and tied his hands together. After several hours of sodomizing Wallace and other disgusting sexual activities, he began to electrocute the now uncon- the now conscious man while snapping photographs with his camera and making notes in his journal. He gave Wallace another large injection of drugs late in the morning, enough so that he felt confident that he could go to work for the day and leave Wallace alone. When Bob returned home, he found Wallace awake and trying to untie himself, and this pissed Bob off. So he gave him a large injection of tranquilizers, and the man lapsed back into unconsciousness. Berdella then used dish soap and a large syringe to give Wallace a homemade enema. What the fuck? Your face while I'm reading this is just priceless. What the, what the he, fuck? He made a note in his torture logbook that said SW for soap and water enema. I can't bring myself to speculate too much about this, so let's just not think yeah, about it. Yeah, let's just skip this fucking nonsense. Wallace finally succumbed to his injuries on June 23rd. He had been held prisoner for roughly 24 hours. Mm. That evening, Bob again drained and dismembered Wallace's battered body, stuffed his remains into green garbage bags, and left him on the curb for the garbage men to pick up the following morning. Berdello was disappointed because Wallace hadn't lasted as long as he had hoped. Just 24 hours. And he started to think of ways that he could sustain his victims for longer. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what he needs. According to Berdella, what he really craved was for his victims to be at his total disposal and have no hope outside of Berdella. Again, we're seeing a God complex. Of course. Yeah. yeah, total God complex there. <clears throat> total control freak. So in the winter, you good? You okay? Yeah, yeah I'm good. <laughs> in winter of 1985, Berdella had a little run-in with the law. He was questioned about selling marijuana to two men named Walter Ferris and Gene Shaw. Berdella apparently had sold the two men a bottle of chlorpromazine, which they had asked if they could trade for a bag of weed. Well, a few days later, the cops showed up to question Berdella at his shop, and he suspected that Ferris had set him up, which royally pissed him off. Of course. A few months later, Berdella ran into Ferris and Shaw again at the flea market, and he invited the men back home, back to his home to party, and the men agreed. After that, it became... An annoying habit, according to Berdella. Shaw and Ferris would call him nearly every day looking to get stoned or looking for a place to crash. One day, Berdella came home from work to discover that the two men had broken into his home and went through all of his stuff looking for drugs. <laughs> God, if they only knew who yeah, they were messing with. That's not the fucking dude's house to break into. No, don't, don't, no, no, no. Do someone else. Ferris later called Berdella and asked him to meet at a nearby bar in downtown Kansas City. And Berdella agreed because by now, Berdella had conjured up a plan to make Ferris his next captive. 
So the two men met and then returned to Berdella's house. Bob asked the young man if he wanted something to eat. Ferris said yes. So Bob went ahead and crushed up several tranquilizers and added them into a bowl of chili. And by 9 p.m., Ferris was out cold on the floor in a second-story bedroom. The horrific cycle of rape and torture would begin yet again. again. Here we go again. When Ferris woke three hours later, Berdella administered electric shock to him as he had with his other victims. Sadly, Ferris's vocal box had been damaged in a car accident years prior, so he was unable to scream or yell loudly at all. Out of all the horrific details, for some reason, that upsets me the most. I think he just felt so helpless. Yeah. He couldn't even scream couldn't out in scream pain. After several more hours of rape and torture, Ferris was bleeding profusely. Berdella took his temperature and discovered that he was running a fever of about 100 degrees. So, wanting to keep his victim alive longer than the others, he started to administer antibiotics intravenously to ensure that his captive, his captive remained alive. Okay. The next night, Berdella noted in his torture log that Ferris had some labored breathing. A few months later, Berdella would note that Ferris, or a few moments later, sorry, Berdella would note that Ferris was 86. That's a term used in the restaurant industry describing when a menu item was not available, or in Ferris's case, he was dead. Oh. Berdella again disposed of Walter Ferris's body after draining the blood and dismembering him. He couldn't help but be annoyed that Ferris had died so quickly. However, he felt a sense of satisfaction that the guy who ratted him out to the cops had paid for what he's done. Berdella was feeling invincible by now. Of course. He was getting away with it. Yeah. So far, he's killed four people, if you're keeping track. He was feeling so invincible that he was going to go out hunting this time as opposed to letting his next victim come to him. He cruised the area but had some difficulty finding a young man who was willing to get in the car with him. (laughs) See, by now, well, he's ugly, first of all. I'll post a picture. Okay. But see, by now, word had gotten out that Berdella was the one responsible for Jerry Howell's disappearance. So everyone was kind of leery of Creepy Bob. After all, he had been the last person seen with the kid before he went missing. Okay. Driving on McGee Street, Berdella ran into a young man named Todd Stoops. Berdella and Todd knew each other. Two years prior, Todd had stayed at Berdella's house for a couple of months with his wife. Both him and his wife, unfortunately, had struggled with drug addiction, and Berdella had actually helped the couple get back on their feet. So Stoops readily got in the car with Berdella, a familiar face. Unfortunately, Stoops was in pretty bad shape. He was fresh out of prison, starving, and in need of a fix. So it didn't take a lot of convincing for him to agree to return to Bob's house with him. Back at the house, Bob made Todd a sandwich. In the sandwich, he added a special ingredient, several crushed up tranquilizers and Valium. Yep. Within 45 minutes, Todd was out cold. Now, Berdella had always been extremely attracted to this young man, and he vowed to be extra careful to ensure that he could keep him for a long time. Oh, goodness. Berdella had his way with Todd throughout the night. At around 7 a.m., Berdella used electrified spatulas in an attempt to burn out Todd's eyes what? in an effort to permanently blind him. Blind what? him. What? what? How the fuck do you electrify a spatula? Metal spatulas, 
I guess. I don't know. Just stab him in the wad. Jesus. Okay. He's he. That's his plaything. You know. It's really just. I mean, if you want to keep him blind, if you want to blind him, keep it from being escaping. Like why electrify spatulas and shut him in the eyeballs? He just wants to. And do an amount of pain that is just so beyond, yeah. you know, and he gets off on that. Verdella then went on to inject drain cleaner into Stoop's vocal cords in an effort to leave him without the ability to scream or speak. Drain, Drano is injected into his throat. The following day, Bob fed uh, Stoop soda and ice cream, but he was unable to keep anything down. He was developing a high fever so as well, so Bordella gave him a shot of antibiotics, hoping to ward off any possible infection. Todd begged and pleaded with Bordella for him to let go, and Bordella later said that he told Todd, you are never leaving, and these are the facts of life, Todd. Sick fuck. The following day, Stoops regained a little bit of his strength and was able to keep down some food, but he had zero energy to fight back. For 13 days... Todd Stoops was brutally raped and tortured beyond what is imaginable. On July 1st, Todd Stoops died from an infection due to his rectum wall being ruptured. Mm. His body was picked up unknowingly by the garbage men outside of Berdella's home the next Monday morning, trash day. Yep, that's what he does. Yep. So Bob Berdella went 11 months without another victim that we know of. Good for him. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> During this time, he decided to go back to Ohio to visit his family. I guess he was talking to his mom now. But before he left, he got a call from an old friend, Larry Pearson. Mm-hmm. Poor Larry. I already know what Poor Larry. Talking. Larry had gone through some hard times. He was homeless and had gotten himself arrested after a drug-fueled bender and was being held in a Kansas City holding cell with Bell set at 150. He didn't know anyone else who was willing or able to help him other than his old friend, Bob Berdella. Berdella thought about it and agreed to pay Larry's bail on one condition, that he traveled to Ohio with him to meet his family. I thought this was weird. It's a little strange. It is. It's just really weird. Now, mind you, this is a super weird request. The two men had never been in a sexual relationship of any kind. And it's not like they were even besties. Yeah. And I have to go meet your mom. (laughs) So meeting Bob's family sounded really out of pocket, but Larry was desperate, so he agreed. So Larry Pearson accompanied Berdella on the week-long trip to Ohio before returning back to Kansas City, where Bob allowed Larry to crash on his couch. For two whole weeks, Larry hung around Bob's house watching TV all day and showed little interest in finding any sort of employment or helping out around the house. Bob started to feel he was being taken advantage of. He doesn't like that. You can't do that. (laughs) We don't want to piss Bob off. No, you don't want to piss Bob. So the pair went to the movies one night and saw the horror movie Creepshow 2. <laughs> Forgot about that one. It was that night that Berdella decided he was going to take poor Larry Pearson prisoner. Of course. After drinking heavily back at the house, Pearson passed out. Pearson, being a larger man than the others, would be difficult for Bob to carry upstairs. So instead, he brought him to the basement and injected him with several tranquilizers to ensure he stayed asleep for a while. While Pearson was out, he injected his throat with Drano to destroy the voice box and then proceeded to tie him up. Over the next five days, Pearson endured electrocutions, injections, painful acupuncture techniques with needles in sensitive areas, 
and of course, brutal, endless rape. rape. Yep. As the days wore on, a daily routine was established and Pearson would comply when he was conscious because he was told that if he complied, he'd be rewarded with less torture and more food. After the torture he had been through, I can definitely see that. I mean, you just don't, you want some of the pain to stop. So you're going to do what you have to, to survive. Bordelli even made Pearson call him Master Bob. Master Bob? (laughs) What the fuck? This dude's so fucked up. We hate you, Bob. Pearson was Bob's prisoner for three weeks. Fuck. When it was finally decided that he could be moved upstairs to the guest bedroom because he was a good boy. Oh, okay. So Bradella put a dog collar around Pearson's neck and led him up the flight of stairs with no resistance by leash. After being held captive for two whole months, Bradella decided that Pearson was compliant enough that the torture could stop. He would just be used strictly as a sex slave now. Oh. That's very nice of you, Bob. So sweet of you. Well, Bordella made it, he had made it his daily routine to go to Pearson's room every morning for oral sex. One day, our boy Larry bit him hard. Bob erupted in anger and beat the hell out of Larry with a wooden spoon, leaving him unconscious. Now, Bob was injured enough that he had to go to his hospital to get stitched up. After the procedure, he was told he would need to remain in the hospital for several days to make sure the bleeding was kept under control. (laughs) Um, But this is a problem because he has a victim at home. He's got a fucking sex slave at home. So he concocted a lie. He told the doctor he had to quickly return home to check on his dog that had just had puppies, and he'd be right back. So Bob hailed a taxi back to his home, and he found Pearson still breathing but unconscious from the beating. Knowing that with a stitched-up penis, he wouldn't be able to have sex for a while, he no longer had any any use for Larry. And he wouldn't leave him here by himself anyways, right? So Mm -hmm. he suffocated him with a plastic bag, cranked up the AC on full blast in an effort to preserve the body, and walked back out to the taxi outside waiting for him, and it took him back to the hospital. Pearson would be dead for three whole days before Burdella got around to disposing of him. Jesus, that's nuts. He noted in his journal how much easier the flesh pulled away from a joint on the body that had been dead for several days as opposed to strong tissue. It's good. It's just easier for him, which I'm so glad. (laughs) Also, he noted that there was no need to drain Pearson of his blood since it had begun to harden into a thick gel-like consistency. Mm, Lovely. Bob is a human hemorrhoid. Remember how he kept Robert Sheldon's head? Well, he did the same thing with Larry's. Of course he did. In fact, in fact, he dug up Sheldon's head and displayed it for all to see alongside Larry's. It really would kind of blend in, though, because if you remember, he collects artifacts. So he had a ton of skulls and, like, shrunken heads and weird shit all around. And... With an injured pencil-sized penis, it would be another seven months before this absolute monster was ready to hunt for another victim. But the next victim would be his downfall. Let's pause for a break. Be right back. Welcome back. Yay, back to this sick fuck. More Bob. No more Bob, please. (laughs) It's okay. This next guy is going to take care of Bob for us. Good. So 
March 29th, 1988, Bob Berdella picked up 21-year-old Chris Bryson, who found himself down on his luck and wandering the streets of downtown Kansas City. Bob spotted Chris and asked him if he wanted to go party. And Chris agreed and hopped into Bob's Toyota Tercel hatchback, and the two headed back to Bob's house of horrors. Once at home, Bob suggested that they go upstairs and watch TV. As Chris walked in front of Bob up the stairs, Bob smashed him on the back of the head with an iron pipe. Chris fell face first onto the stairs, and Bob quickly injected him with a heavy dose of sedatives to ensure he would be out for quite a while. Like so many other young men before him, Chris was carried upstairs to the guest bedroom where he was tied up, gagged, and repeatedly assaulted, each assault being recorded in Berdella's torture log. Shortly before 8 a.m. the next morning, Bryson began to regain consciousness, and he, of course, began to scream for his life because he's terrified. Berdella jabbed Bryson hard in his right eye with his index finger repeatedly. Jesus, that's so cruel. That's he's just cruel. He's just just cruel. Berdella then took a cotton swab soaked with bleach and held open Bryson's eyes and dabbed his eyeballs. Mm. Now remember, Bryson is alert, fully alert. Yeah. He's also tied up and gagged, and he can't do anything to defend himself. Berdella would continue his efforts to completely incapacitate Chris. He took the same iron bar he used to whack him over the head with, and he smashed Chris's hands and several joints. Then the electrocution torture began, as well as the needle torture. He injected Drano into his victim's throat while telling him that if he kept trying to scream, he would put it directly into his voice box, and he would never be able to scream again. Bryson was then shown the Polaroids of the many men who came before him, and was told that he too would meet the same fate if he didn't comply. Fuck, okay. Can you imagine seeing those pictures? No, that's fucked up on another level. It's like just fucked up on another level. Mm-hmm. On day four of his captivity, Bryson was left alone in the house while Berdella went to work. Before Berdella left, Chris Bryson asked him if it was possible that he could tie his hands in front of him instead of over his head because he was cutting off his circulation. By some miracle, Bob agreed. After Chris was certain Bob was gone, he was able to somehow free his hands and remove the gag in his mouth. His legs were were bound too tightly to untie, so he used matches that he found in the nightstand beside him to burn through the rope. Naked and unable to find his clothes, he opened the bedroom window, stumbled out onto the roof. It was a two-story drop to the ground, but screw it. This was his chance, so he you jumped. Fuck it, I'm out. Yeah, he did break his foot when he jumped, but he was okay. Who cares? Fuck it, I'm out. Uh, exactly. Chris, now, <laughs> Chris was completely nude. Aside from a dog collar around his neck with the leash still attached. So can you imagine seeing this kid completely naked with a dog collar running down the street? A meter man was the first to see Bryson limping with swollen red eyes and barely able to speak. Chris was frantically pointing at Bob's house, whispering, because, you know, he had Drano injected in his vocal cords, that he had been held captive by the guy that lives there. The meter man helped him to a neighbor's house, where police were called. It was said, too, that the neighbor was like, you can't come in, but um, stay here. I'll call the cops. Yeah, I want that shit in my house. <laughs> Within minutes, Kansas City police were on their way to a situation like they had never seen before. 
But thanks to Chris Bryson's perseverance, the sicko's reign of terror was about to come to an end, thank God. So good job, Chris. You can actually see lots of interviews with Chris on YouTube. With Chris Bryson safe and getting treatment at the hospital, Kansas City's Crimes Against Persons Division was notified to get down to the house on Charlotte Street and check it out. And according to what Chris Bryson had told them, homicide needed to be on standby as well. Chris had informed them that he had seen Polaroids of dead guys. And with the state that poor Chris was in, they tended to believe him. Officers knocked on Berdella's door, but no one appeared to be home. About that time, Bob pulled up in his Toyota Tercel and inquired as to why in the world police would be knocking on his door. He's an angel. Of course. An officer asked him his name and then immediately arrested him under the suspicion of sexual assault. Yeah. Back at the station, Berdella was being difficult. Remember, he thinks he's smarter than he's everyone smarter, else. smarter, but he's a god complex. When asked if he would consent to a search of his home in order for police to investigate the victim's report, Berdella appeared to be baffled as to what that meant and who would accuse him of such a thing. <laughs> he declined the search, of course. Of course he did. It was fairly quick and easy for police to obtain a search warrant. So they kicked in Berdella's front door, and they were greeted by two large dogs that were removed by animal control officers. Something tells me he didn't exactly take great care of his fur babies. No. But that's just me. Officers were met with what I can only imagine looks like an episode of the show, Hoarders. Yep. Also, there was shit everywhere. Oh. Dog. Dog shit. Dog shit everywhere. Papers covered the ground floor. And police say that it was impossible to walk around without stepping in dog poop. It was just disgusting. Gross. The kitchen was filthy. The whole house smelled. There was a rotting turkey carcass and a pot on the stove, which by now is sticking up even up to the second floor. It was so nasty. When officers moved up to the second floor, they found the bedroom that Bryson was held captive in. Next to the bed was a power transformer and the ropes that Bryson had been tied with They were still there, hanging on the bed frame. On the nightstand next to the bed were syringes and tons of prescription drugs. Finally, a big box of Polaroids was Mm, found. He's fucked. You can imagine the horror of police looking through these photos, right? Jesus. On top of the pile of pictures were pictures of Bryson, so that proved that he had been there. They found tons of books about Satanism and Satanic rituals as well. This led the officers... Of course, to suspect that they were dealing with Satanist, a Satanist. Mm -hmm. Later on, when this got out to the press, though, they ran with it. Of course. But you also have to remember that this was during the time of the Satanic panic in the 80s. So everybody was a Satanist. They they don't give a shit this dude was torturing and killing people. They're like, oh, he was a Satanist. That's why he did it. That's it. That's it. Run the story. Personally, I just think that as a collector, Bob had tons of books, not only about Satanism, but all kinds of religions. Yeah. So I don't, I just, it's my opinion that. He just doesn't not, seem, I mean, he, maybe he was, but it doesn't seem like his driving calls, obviously. It, that was no. the sexual gratification and the torture. Yeah. Now, the search warrant that the police had was strictly to investigate the sexual assault, not for homicide. But after they found the Polaroids of seemingly dead bodies being suspended from the basement and drained of their blood, they're like, okay, we need to get one for homicide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a new search warrant was obtained so that any evidence they found couldn't be thrown out in court, right? Right, right, right based on the wrong warrant being used. And boy, did they find the evidence. Hundreds of more Polaroids were found in a big suitcase 
showing men being brutally tortured, many of them with plastic bags over their heads. In one satchel, a wallet was found with a driver's license belonging to Walter Ferris. Remember him? Mm-hmm. As well as two human skulls. Yeah. It took forever to sift through all of the artifacts and relics Berdella had collected. And at 2 a.m., police finally decided to break for the night. They had enough to at least charge Berdella with nine counts of sodomy for the time and first-degree assault with a, and uh, felonious restraint. This was a knee-jerk reaction just so Berdella wouldn't be set free. And that would give police more time to yep. sift through yeah, all yeah, this yeah. shit. He can't be hold for longer than yeah. 24 hours and then exactly. charge him with something. So they got charged charge with, with something. So the following day, police found a human skull with clumps of flesh and hair still attached to it. It was later determined to be the skull of Larry Pearson. This pretty much sealed the deal. Yeah. Yeah. So this dude was a cold-blooded serial killer. These poor investigators definitely needed some counseling after this. Oh, I'm sure they say. did. Yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> Back at the jail, Sideshow Bob wasn't happy. He lawyered up and tried desperately to seek bail, but thankfully he was denied. Yeah, like that. While Bob was brooding in jail, waiting for his arraignment, investigators continued to search his property. They performed a luminol test. You know, that lit up like... <laughs> oh, that thing lit up a Christmas tree around that house. <laughs> they performed a luminol test and found evidence of just an uncanny amount of blood. It was everywhere. Walls, floors, ceilings, garbage cans, especially in the basement area. They found a workbench with a chainsaw, and they were shocked to find the blades coated in blood, flesh, and hair. Bone fragments were also in the blade guard. Investigators would leave there literally with a small warehouse full of evidence. Yeah. The state was now able to charge Bob with the murder of six men. Plenty to put this shit stain away from good. Yeah, no shit. To be safe, the prosecution proceeded to trial for just the murder of Larry Pearson, though, because they could definitely prove that he was murdered there since his skull was found there. Mm-hmm. It sounds unfair, but the families of the missing men wanted the death penalty for this guy, which I 100% respect. To everyone's shock, Bob pled guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table. He's a first-class little bitch that doesn't want to die. So, along with pleading guilty, Berdella had agreed to offer a full confession, which would include the names of the six men he murdered. Knowing that he was safe from death, Berdella laid out a 600-page confession in front of the prosecution, going over every single morbid detail, most likely enjoying every single oh, he's minute of it. it all, yeah. Got to relive it. Bob Berdella received two life sentences as part of the plea agreement, with no chance of parole, plus four conditional life sentences for second degree murder. Unfortunately, Bob Berdella would only serve four years of his life sentence before dying of a heart attack on October 8th, 1992, at the age of 43. Some of his victims' family members were glad to see him go, and others felt like he just got off too easily, which I, I think I would feel that way too. I'd be yeah. pissed. Yeah. But during thing. those four years, he was a nightmare of an inmate. <laughs> One day in the span of just four hours, he made over 30 formal complaints, filed them, about how he was being treated in prison. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. A prison guard said that it was almost as if he expected the prison to be like Ritz-Carlton. Also, he had to be put into SEG. I think it's called segregation. Mm -hmm. 
away from the other prisoners because he was apparently just starting shit on purpose. I think that Seg was his goal all along, to be honest, because guys like him don't do well in prison. No, yeah, he Sexual he sadists. So the victim's family, they went ahead and filed a wrongful death lawsuit, but most of them didn't hold up in court because they didn't meet the stupid statute of limitations, which is so aggravating. However, one of the lawsuits did hold up, and Bob and his family were ordered to pay billions of dollars with a B. <laughs> now, Bob nor his family would ever be able to pay this, but it's speculated that the judge secured such a high amount to ensure that Bob could never make any profits from interviews, books, or movie yeah, deals. Yeah, that's, that's smart, because you think about the time period with some of these serial killers we've seen, they've all made millions of dollars. They did, and this was before um, it was illegal yeah. for a convicted offender to profit off of stuff like this. This is when all these guys were making millions of dollars, Bundy, everybody, they were all making millions in jail. It's not fair. books and movie deals and all this other stuff. Well, this ensures that he can't. Yeah, Anything, <laughs> any effort he does to make money is instantaneously going to go to the family. Yeah, it's crazy. So what happens to Bob's house? You may be wondering. You're probably not, but I was. I know you were. It's what you do. <laughs> a man named Del Dunmeyer, a millionaire from Pennsylvania, purchased Bob Berdella's house of horrors along with everything inside of it. And he also bought all the inventory that Bob had in his store. He said it took him months to go through all this junk. Dunmeyer claimed to have no interest in the items other than he just felt like he understood Berdella. Oh, I'm glad you do, because <laughs> I don't. <laughs> he would later level the house, and he sold the property to neighbors. So the original house isn't there anymore, which is good, because who would want to live there? Yeah, who the fuck wants to go there? It's gross. I wonder if they found anything else. What like, the fuck did this dude buy it and just sell it all? He He's crazy, too. identified with Bob. How the fuck do you identify with Bob? How does a human being identify with Bob? <laughs> and there's your little bedtime tale of Bob Berdella, the Kansas Sunday, <laughs> the Kansas City Butcher. Just a little light fucking audio story for you. <laughs> well, Thanks, we, Courtney. We had such a light and airy interview with Vic that I had to I had to put everyone in their place with a gnarly serial yes. killer. We had a fun little interview, good times with Vic. Now you want to come over here and just traumatize the shit out of us some more. <laughs> You're welcome. Appreciate it. <laughs> no problem, Bob. Always can count on you on that shit. Pun intended. <laughs> well, that's it. That's all she wrote. Yeah, I can't believe I've never heard of that dude. That's yeah. Ridiculous. He's definitely one of the most sadistic, evil human beings you've covered on the show. Horrible. Horrible. And we learned something, too. How do you find these people? Like, I don't understand. Every time we do an episode, I'm like, that's the most vile, sick motherfucker I've ever heard of. And then the next episode, you're like, hey, world, it's me. Look what I got. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> that's, that's why I get paid the big bucks. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I guess there's nothing else to say after that. Not really. But uh, we love you, and we'll see you back here this time next week for some more Evil Pudding. Y'all be good to each other. Bye.